Well, we're in our second week of a new series that we kicked off last week called Radical, and um, one of the influences for this series has been a book by David Platt called Radical, even though we're not necessarily teaching directly from it, it's still been a source of inspiration. And as I was reading through the book just um, last week, there was a section that jumped out at me, and I was going to try to recap it for you all, but I thought, you know what, it'd be better for me just to read it. So if you happen to have this book, you can maybe write down in your notes um, that I'll be reading from page 25 if you want to kind of reference it. But uh, man, this is a powerful story that uh, David Platt tells in this uh, chapter of this book. So I'm just going to read a little bit of it to you here this morning. He says, travel with me back to the underground house church scene that I described in chapter one. On my first day with these believers, they simply asked me to lead a Bible study. They said, please meet us tomorrow at two o'clock in the afternoon. So I put some thoughts together for a short Bible study. I went to the designated location where about 20 house church leaders were waiting. I don't remember when we started, but I do remember that eight hours later, we were still going strong. We wouldn't study one passage, and then they would ask about another, and this would lead to another topic, then another. And by the end of the day, our conversations had ranged from dreams and visions to tongues and the Trinity. And it was late in the evening, and they wanted to continue studying, but they needed to go back to their homes. So they asked two of the main church leaders, can we meet again tomorrow? And I said, I would be glad to. Should we meet at the same time? They responded, no, we want to start early in the morning. I said, okay. How long would you like to study? They replied, all day. Thus began a process in which over the next 10 days, for 8 to 12 hours a day, we would gather to study God's Word. They were hungry. On the second day, I introduced these relatively new believers to the story of Nehemiah. I gave them the background and the history of this book of the Bible, and I showed them in Nehemiah 8 the importance of God's Word. And afterwards, we took a short break, and I saw the leaders talking intently about something in groups. And a few minutes later, one of them approached me and said, we've never learned any of this truth before, and we want to learn more. And then she dropped the bomb. Would you be willing to teach us about all of the books of the Old Testament while you're here? I laughed, smiling, and I said, all of the Old Testament? That would take a really long time. By this time, others were joining in the conversation, and they said, we'll do whatever it takes. Most of us are farmers, and we work all day, but we will leave our fields unattended for the next couple of weeks if we can learn about the Old Testament. So that's what we did. The next day, I walked them through an overview of Old Testament history. We started in Genesis, and in the days that followed, we plowed through the highlights and the themes of every Old Testament book. Imagine teaching Song of Solomon to a group of Asian believers, many of whom had never read the book before. I was just praying they didn't have any questions. On the next to last day, we finished in Malachi, and I had 12 more hours to teach, and I had no clue what to say. Once you've taught through Habakkuk, what else is there to cover? So the last day I started teaching on a random subject, but within an hour I was interrupted by one of the leaders, and they said, we have a problem. Worried that I had said or done something wrong, I responded, what's the matter? He replied, you've taught us the Old Testament, but you've not taught us the New Testament. <laughs> I smiled, but he was serious. We would like to learn the New Testament today, he said. As other leaders across the room nodded. I had no choice. For the next 11 hours, we walked briskly from Matthew to Revelation. Now, just imagine going to a worship gathering in one of these house churches in persecuted Asia. Not an all-day training in the Word, just a normal three-hour worship service late in the evening. The Asian believer who's taking you gives you the instructions, put on dark pants and a jacket with a hood on it. We will put you in the back of our car and drive you into the village. Please keep your hood on and your face down. 
When you arrive in the village under the cover of night, another Asian believer meets you at the car door and says, follow me. With your hood over your head, you crawl out of the car, keeping your face toward the ground. You begin to walk with your eyes fixed on the feet of the man in front of you as he leads you down a long, winding path with a flashlight. You hear more and more footsteps around you as you progress down the trail. Then finally, you round the corner and walk into a small room. Despite its size, 60 believers crammed into it. They're of all ages, from precious little girls to 70-year-old men. They're either sitting on the floor or on small stools, lying shoulder to shoulder, huddled together with their Bibles in their laps. The roof is low, and one light bulb dangles from the middle of the ceiling as the sole source of illumination. No sound system, no band, no guitar, no entertainment, no cushioned chairs, no heated or air-conditioned building, nothing but the people of God and the Word of God. And strangely, that's enough. God's Word is enough for millions of believers who gather in house churches just like this one. His Word is enough for millions of other believers who huddle in African jungles and South American rainforests and Middle Eastern cities. But is His Word enough for us? As I read that, I began to think about this thing that you and I have been taught from a very young age should be the pursuit of our life. And yet it conflicts with the message of the gospel and the passion and the radical pursuit that we should have of God and the radical lifestyle that he's called us to. And that thing that conflicts with that is this thing we call the American dream. So the title of my message today is Taking Your Faith Back from the American Dream. And as I began to think about this story, the thing that it impressed on me the most was that these people were hungry for more. They were hungry for something real. They were tired of just being pacified with fleeting pleasures. They were tired of just being pacified with pursuits that were ended up being aimless. And they instead were hungry for something more. And as I begin to think about hunger, I think that the main thing that we all can understand and agree on is that hunger is driven by need. So when a preacher will ask a question of a congregation... And they'll say something like, who's hungry for the Word of God? Who, who's hungry for more of God? We'll say, yeah, amen, woohoo, yeah. We want to be radical followers of Jesus. But oftentimes, our hunger will just kind of dwane if, you know, we're like, ah, oh, I'm okay, you're okay, I'm doing, you know, at least as good as the guy next sitting to me, you know, maybe I'm doing a little better than him or her, I don't know. But we miss out on being hungry, truly hungry for more of God because we're missing out on really seeing what our true need is. And that's really what drives our need, because you don't have to tell someone who has been without food for three days, hey, you're hungry, you need something to eat, don't you? You don't have to explain to them and articulate to them what hunger means and how hungry they are or how hungry they should be. You haven't eaten in three days. My goodness, you should be hungry. Don't you know better? We don't have to say things like that to people who've been without food, because it's obvious. There's something there that's missing, and they know what they need. And the reason they're hungry is because there's something missing, something that they know that they have to have. And so here's the thing. When we ask the question, are we truly hungry for more of God, or do we truly want to be these radical followers of Jesus, I think it boils down to the fundamental question, do we understand our need? The danger of the church in America is that we're very confused when it comes to identifying need because we as Americans don't truly understand need. Like a, a lot of people in uh, underdeveloped places of the world truly do, 
The things we think we need are much different from the things we actually need. And that's why we go seeking certain pleasures in life as the answer, because we don't understand our truly what we need. We drink the Kool-Aid, and it's distorted our definition of what need is. Because we're told from a very young age that if we work hard, do right, treat others right, that all of our dreams will come true. And then come the dreams, the dreams that have been fed to us as a glorified lie, the dream that means we're supposed to be the ones end up being the hero. We're the one that's always supposed to get the recognition. We should always come out victorious, and we should always deserve to be happy, and we chase after happiness as our dream, and we think we deserve wealth and certain abilities and fame and a great retirement, and we deserve to be treated well, and we think we're entitled to all of these things because this is our dream, and it's the American dream to be happy, healthy, and wealthy, but have we ever stopped ourselves to ask, why do we want this? Why are we chasing this? What do we truly need? And church, today I want us to begin to take our faith back from this idea of the American dream by uncovering and unveiling our real need. As we talk about the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ, we understand that the gospel reveals to us the glory of God. It shows us how great God is, not how great you and I are. Because when it comes to how great you and I are, man, we don't really make the cut. God is truly great, and the gospel doesn't show us how great we are. As a matter of fact, the gospel shows us and uncovers for us our true need, and it presents Christ as the answer to that need. The gospel is not a guide to self-improvement. The gospel doesn't uh, reveal to us how God wants us to become better versions of ourselves and how he kind of wants to come along and help us out a little bit. You see, God's not interested in promoting you above his glory. He's not interested in promoting me above his glory. He's not interested in us thinking that we can somehow have God uh, uh, in our debt because of how great we are. No, even our abilities and the gifts that we have are things that we need to recognize we get to use for God's glory, not things that God necessarily needs to accomplish his will because God can accomplish his plan without you or I being involved. We get to be a part of this. What a huge honor. What a huge blessing to think that we get to do this because God isn't wondering and, and getting nervous about the fact, oh no, I hope Derek makes the right choice because if he blows this one, he's going to mess up my whole plan. God's not getting nervous and shaky thinking, oh man, what you, you bonehead, why did you do that? Oh my gosh, why did you do that? Now I've got to go back to the drawing boards and I have to form a new committee with the angels and we all got to sit down and talk about this whole thing again because you blew it and you messed up my whole plan. God doesn't get nervous. God doesn't, God doesn't have to go back to the drawing board when you and I choose not to use the gifts and the things that he's given us. So God's will is not contingent upon how great we are. We didn't blow this thing. We didn't mess it all up just because we didn't do it. God's going to accomplish his will because he's God and he's bigger than you or me. It's that we get an invitation to get to be a part. And we need to recognize that. But we grow up in this American culture that tells us from childhood that we're special. And we want to believe this because why wouldn't you want to believe that, man? I mean, it makes us feel good. But what we have done as we've exchanged this feeling and made the gospel about us instead of about God. We've made the gospel about us. We've become glory thieves where we want the attention on us and we think that this whole thing is about us and we miss it. 
And when we think that this whole thing's about us, we miss our need oftentimes because we've been told that if we think a certain way, if we confess a certain thing, or if we believe certain things will happen, that we're going to have this amazing life. And folks, I would have a difficult time teaching that message to a brother in Christ that lives in persecuted China, meeting secretly in a home like we read about in that story. That message doesn't translate, and the reason it doesn't translate is because it isn't true. God is for God, and this is His gospel message that points to how awesome He is, not how awesome we are. It actually shows you and I the opposite. It shows us our need, and that's what the gospel is meant to do. It's to glorify Jesus and what He did on the cross, not how great you and I are to where we're like, hey God, did you see what I did? I helped that old lady change her tire on the side of the road, like bonus points, right, for that? It's pretty good, huh? I bet you sure are lucky to have me as a follower of Jesus, right? Don't you just wake up every morning and go, oh, I'm so glad Derek is following me. Oh, man, this is so great. No, that's, that's not what God is doing. But somehow we've become people that think that that's God's value system, is that God just is so happy that I'm following him because he needs me so much. Listen, folks, he, he, he doesn't need me. I get to follow him because the gospel shows me my real need. And if I'm willing to see my real need and see Christ as the answer, then I get to be a recipient of God's love, a recipient of this good news, this gospel message. Let's go over to Revelation chapter 3. If you have a Bible this morning, you can follow along. Also, I want to just give you guys a heads up. We haven't said anything about this in a while, um, just because we said it a lot for a while, and, and I've just kind of gotten lax in reminding you. But there's an app um, that you can download. It's for free. It's called YouVersion, and it's a Bible app. And if you download that app, there's a section in that that you can actually click on um, where you can get deeper into the menu and see live events. And if you click on live events, you should see Word of Grace pop up, and you can actually follow along in the notes that I've written, so that way you can have a copy of those notes, and you can also make your own notes on top of that, and then when you're done, you can email yourself a PDF, and it's pretty cool, and it's a free deal, so why not use it if you want to grow in your faith and, and kind of take some notes and whatnot, um, just as long as you're, you know, not playing Angry Birds or whatnot, it's fine, um, you know, checking your Facebook or whatever, um, so Revelation uh, chapter 3. Now, before I read from Revelation 3, I want to give you guys a heads up of kind of what's happening here in Revelation 3 before we read it so we can understand the context. So in Revelation 3, you have John, who was a disciple of Jesus, who has been exiled to this island called Patmos, all right? It's a place uh, that's a, a prison island, island that where people just get exiled there and they're left there to die, right? So John's been taken to this island because of his faith. So it's because of uh, him being in a persecuted time. Um, you know, you were killed or exiled for following Christ. And so John's on this island of Patmos, and God gives him this vision of all these things, and he tells him to write all of these things down. And he tells him to write things specifically to seven different churches that actually existed that were right off of the Isle of Patmos that were on the, the bigger section of land there right next to this island, and there's a sequential order that he writes these different letters to these churches. And he writes these things that God shows him through this vision. And if you look at the systematic order in which these different letters are written to these seven churches, it's actually on an ancient mail route. So this would be the way that mail got delivered to these churches in sequence. And as you go through the sequence of 
these letters to the seven churches that are in that order of that mail route. So these were meant for those churches for that time, but I also believe that even though those churches received these letters, these letters still speak to us today and identify kind of where we're at too. And out of all the seven churches, I would think that the one that unfortunately is the one that we can identify with the most is this church in Laodicea in Revelation 3. So that's what we're about to read. In Revelation chapter 3, we're going to start verse 14, and this is what Jesus gave to um, John to write down. And the, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen and the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And here's what he tells them. I know your works, that you are neither cold or hot. I wish you were either cold or hot, but because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich and I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's examine this here. These are the words of Jesus that are given to John, and remember, they're meant for this actual church in Laodicea. Now, in AD 60, there was a huge earthquake that happened in the region of Laodicea, and you can read this in history books, to where this earthquake just absolutely ruined this area and just really hurt and crippled this area financially, especially because the Laodiceans were known for their textile work as also for their medical advancements that they had made. They were a very prosperous area, but now they're left in ruin. And what happened next was there were a lot of different surrounding areas that reached out to them and said, hey, we'll be willing to help you to kind of rebuild and offer aid and relief. And the Laodiceans rejected it. And they said, we're okay. We're good. We don't need any aid. We're going to take care of this ourselves. They were choosing self-sufficiency and their own pride instead of allowing those from the outside to come in and to help them rebuild after the earthquake. And so they not only rejected that relief, but Laodicea was also known for its lukewarm water because the aqueducts that they actually uh, piped into their city for their water flow were fed off the Lycus River. The Lycus River was five miles away from Laodicea, and the water of the Lycus River was already kind of muddy and gross anyways. And so we see that by the time the, the springs would send the water over to carried by the aqueducts and it would actually reach Laodicea, it was muddy, it was lukewarm, and it really wasn't good for much, and Laodicea was known for this. And I think what Jesus was doing here is he was likening their spiritual condition to their physical condition. He was saying, listen, you guys have rejected relief, and he wasn't necessarily chastising them for rejecting the physical relief, but he was telling them of their spiritual need and their spiritual condition by identifying to them that you've said, I'm okay, I'm good. So in other words, they're asking the question of, I'm in need? Like, 
I don't think I'm in need. I'm okay. And the reason we know this is because the next thing that John writes that Jesus said to them was, you say, I am rich and I've prospered. You say, you're doing good. You're saying, I'm rich. He said, but you don't realize that you're naked, you're blind, you're actually wretched. People should be having pity on you because of the state that you're in. But you're going, I'm okay. I'm good. I don't really have a need. I mean, this might be for somebody else, but it's not for me because I'm okay. So they didn't want to acknowledge their need. They didn't want to say, this is what I need. They didn't want to say, I need help. Because that really takes humility to acknowledge that you need help. Because we all want to put our best foot forward, right? And we all want to show our strength. We don't want to lead off with our weaknesses. We want to lead off with our strength. And that's kind of what the Laodiceans were doing. And so because of this, they didn't even see the need that they truly had. They had become self-reliant. And here also Jesus says, man, I wish you were hot or cold because that would be so much more beneficial. But just like that yucky, muddy water that's lukewarm that flows into your city, that's still the condition of your heart. Man, you're not sold out to anything. You're not passionate about anything. You're not hot or cold. You're trying to live just a complacent life, just thinking, I'm okay, you're okay, everybody's okay, and no one's really passionate or sold out or giving themselves over to anything. He said, this is your state. This is where you're at. This is the condition of your heart. And he's trying to reveal to them their need so that they can see their need. But he's saying, you're not getting it. You're not understanding it. And how many of us are stuck right there? We're stuck right there. We're stuck right there thinking, I'm okay. I don't really have a lot I need. I'm okay. We want everyone to leave us alone. And we want people, you know, just to, just to kind of be at arm's length. And we'll think, you know what? I'm as committed as I need to be, Okay. At least I'm doing better than most people. And we'll begin to compare ourselves to other people. We'll begin to say, oh, well, at least, you know, I'm not doing what so-and-so did. At least I'm, you know, I don't really have, you know, this need for God in my life because, you know, I, I'm, I'm just trying to do pretty good on my own. I'm okay on my own. And we think we're doing better than most and we don't really see our need because we're too busy chasing the American dream. Another thing that the Laodiceans did was that they're living in the past. They're living in the past. They, they thought they were still prosperous. How crazy is this? It doesn't say that, that they were lying about it. So these people weren't lying. They genuinely believed they were okay. They genuinely believed, we don't need help. We got this. They really and truly believed that. He said, but you don't realize you're naked, man. It's awkward. You think you've got clothes on, and, and you don't. You're, you're, you're poor, and we all see you're poor, but you think you're not poor. You think you don't need help, but we all can see you need help. And we're trying to tell you, and you keep rejecting it. Kind of like when you're able to see in a family member or a close friend, and you know something's wrong, and they won't let you in. You ever had that happen before? Yes. Or maybe we were that person. I can tell something's wrong with you. You're, you're not being your normal self. Oh, nothing's wrong with me. I'm pretty sure something's wrong with you. And that only ticks them off more, right? But the thing is, is that we don't want to acknowledge the need. And neither did the Laodiceans. They wanted to live in the past, but they were blinded to their need. And how many of us are living in the past of our own self-sufficient successes? 
or rather we're living in the past of something that maybe God blessed us with in the past that we're trying to recapture, you know, and live in the good old days. We're trying to recapture those things. Oh man, if church could just go back to the way it used to be, if we could just do things the way we used to do, and we just always want to grab and reach back for something that was behind us instead of allowing that thing that was behind us to help propel us forward. We miss all these things because just like the Laodiceans, we think we're all right. But once we see our real need and the answer to that need being Jesus, we can't help but be a radical follower of Jesus. I'm telling you, church, once we see, once we see the fact that we actually are in need and we see the answer to that need, we can't help but be radical. It's not like we should be radical followers of Jesus because some pastor said, hey, be a radical follower of Jesus. Okay, thanks for the suggestion. We'll do. Instead, it's I'm compelled because I'm so stinking overwhelmed by the goodness of God because I saw how depraved that I was and I saw how radical my need was and my response is a radical devotion to Christ when I see Christ as the answer to my need. And until you see Christ as the answer to your need, and until you identify that you even have a need in the first place, you'll never really see the value of what Christ did on the cross. You see, it's not a question that we should ask, am I in need, but rather a statement, Jesus, I am in need. So we can take our faith back from the American dream by seeing that our need is Christ alone. And that Christ alone is the answer. So it no longer is a question, but rather it's a cry from our heart. Because we see that, man, my sin is something I can't fix on my own. My depravity is something I can't fix on my own. My blindness, my nakedness, I, I can't fix these things on my own. So here's what we need to do. We need to first realize our need, okay? We need to realize... We need to realize our need. And if we don't see it, if we don't realize it, then we'll ne never be able to truly see value in Christ. What do we actually need? Well, um, first of all, he said, you're naked. In other words, who you really are, man, this thing's being exposed, and I'm trying to show you that your nakedness is causing this shame. It's not God trying to shame you. It's the fact that you're rejecting His help. You're rejecting His love, and it's causing you shame, and you need to realize your need and the fact that we are blind, and we can't see that. We, we can't see what we truly need to see. I need eye salve, he said, to anoint my eyes with so I can, so I can see. See what? Well, see that I'm hopeless, that I am really... <laughs> I'm really bankrupt. Maybe not from a cash position, but in the fact that I'm trying to earn my way into God's good graces by my behavior, or by doing everything just right, sitting up just right, reading just enough of the Bible, praying just enough, being just this type of person, just all these nice things. And Jesus is like, you can do all those nice things, but you're still 
lukewarm if you haven't put your faith and your hope in Christ because you haven't seen your need. You're trying to play the, the, the scales of justice and tip them in your favor, and you're trying to operate off of a karma-based system that if I do enough good, maybe that good will come back around to me, and that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that we're not good, and there's nothing good in us, and that we have a deep, severe need, and that need is that we need to be forgiven. We need to be saved. We need to be put into right standing with a holy and perfect God, and you and I can't make a path for ourselves. Only Jesus can. Because Jesus took the punishment for your sin and my sin, and he opened my eyes so I'm not blind. He helped deliver me out of my bankrupt state, and he delivered me from this place of just simply not being good. And that's the thing that we have to realize because a lot of people don't want to believe this. They don't want to believe that they're not good because at the core we all want to believe we're good. And we think we're good based on the things that we do. And Jesus said, no, there's not one that's good, not one. It's just God. And when we realize he's good and we're not, then we can rest and trust in his goodness. Because as I begin to think about the scriptures that we read, it's kind of crazy. Because he asks the people of Laodicea, he tells them, he says, you guys need to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Why are you asking poor people to buy gold? Doesn't seem right. You just said we're poor. And you're asking me to buy gold? That would be like finding a homeless person on the street and saying, buy this million-dollar mansion, and it's yours. Okay, I can't afford that. I can't buy it. I can't work hard enough to try to buy it. I, what am I going to do? That would be like telling someone who is starving, why don't you just walk through the doors of this all-you-can-eat buffet restaurant, and yet they couldn't do that on their own. They couldn't even get through the front door. That would seem to be very cruel. That would seem almost like you're taunting and tormenting someone to tell a poor person that you just called them poor, naked, blind, bankrupt. Hey, buy gold for me refined in the fire. That's what Jesus said. How do I do this? Well, guess what? You can't do it in your own strength. You can't get that pure thing, that pure thing that God is trying to give you that he likens to that pure gold that's been refined in the fire. You can't get that on your own. He said, buy clothes from me that are white, that are clean, so you can be forgiven. I, I can't buy those clothes. How, I, I mean, how do I even know how much they cost? I, I, I don't even know how to do this. He said, you need to get eye salve from me so you can anoint your eyes, so you can see your need. You see, I can't do this on my own. Because guess what? God never asks me to do it on my own. He sent Jesus to pay the price for you and for me so that we can have things we didn't deserve, that we didn't earn, that we couldn't become worthy of in our own strength. And you want to know what getting what you didn't deserve is called? What's it called? Somebody help me out. It's called grace. And it's not just any type of grace, church but it truly is His amazing grace that has truly set us free, that has covered all of our shame, that has bought and paid for our freedom so that we can truly see, so that now anything good in me comes out of the amazing grace of God and not from myself. It's the cross of Christ that I cling to. It's his cross and his goodness because he who knew no sin became sin for me so I could know righteousness, 
so I could be in right standing in the eyes of God, not because of me, but rather in spite of me. His amazing grace has paved the way for you and for me. And we receive this gift from Christ by His amazing grace, not of our works, but rather I'm content and I'm rich in His grace. I am clothed in His righteousness and my shame is covered by His grace. And I can now see my need and I can see Jesus as the answer to my need by His grace alone. Over in Romans chapter 3, I want to read this scripture as we're wrapping up this morning. Over in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes this in Romans 3 and verse 20. He says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, that the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, it's a gift of grace. It's not something you have to work for. It's not something you have to try to earn or something you have to try to become worthy of because none of us are worthy of it. We've all fallen short. We've all sinned, Scripture says. But that's not the end of the story. That'd be a sad thing if it were the end of our story. But because of God and His great mercy and His love and His grace, that's not the end of your story and that's not the end of my story. That means there's hope that we can be forgiven, that we can be brought into right standing in the eyes of God, that we don't have to be these lukewarm people, that we can be radical followers of Christ, fully devoted to Him, not just casually, conveniently, or conservatively devoted to Christ, because there's no such thing as a conservative radical. You're either radical or you're not. You're either hot or you're cold, or maybe you're lukewarm. But if you're going to follow Christ, be passionate for Him. Not because I told you to, because who cares what I say? At the end of the day, all that matters is what is God speaking to your heart? What is the thing that He's stirring up in you that He's calling you to? Maybe the things He's calling you to let go of, the things He's calling you to embrace, whatever it is. Know that His grace is sufficient and He is enough. Hebrews 4 and 16 says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. It says in our time of need. But we got to first acknowledge the need. we got to first go, yeah, i got a need. Jesus, I need you. I need to be forgiven. I, want, I don't want to live the rest of my life chasing after things that temporarily satisfy but then leave me feeling empty at the end of the day. I don't want to arrive at retirement age and find out that, God, I've been living my life selfishly for myself and not for you because you're the only one worthy of true devotion. I can only see that value when I see my need. When I see the poor, the, the, the blind, the nakedness that, that I have because of my sin, instead of being arrogant, thinking, I got this. I don't need anything. I don't need God. I don't need Christ-centered community. I don't need church community. I don't need to be connected to you know, Christ-centered relationships. I don't need to 
know more about God. I, I know enough. I'm good. I'm okay. He says, no, you're, you're not. You, you just don't, you don't realize it. And I hope today maybe you have seen some of your need because a radical follower of Jesus is hungry to know him more, just like the people we read about in the beginning of this book. When we began to read about people that were so hungry for the word of God that they were willing for two weeks to neglect their farm fields just to go and and hear scripture be taught by this American in, in this Asian country that's persecuted. And maybe that makes us feel bad. I don't know, but that wasn't my intent. I didn't want you to feel bad about it. Because if you feel bad about it, when you leave this place, you're, you're probably not going to think about it again. But these people are coming out of the natural overflow of identifying their real need and finding the answer to that need. And because they found value in Christ, they are willing to inconvenience themselves for the sake of Christ. They're willing to say, yeah, what do you want me to do, Lord? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to respond?